to this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, we're going to wrap up part two of this two-part discussion on theonomy with Dr. Charles Lee Irons. If you enjoyed this series or the content of any of my other episodes, please consider becoming a sponsor of the show. You can find the links in the blog at the freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or just visit our Patreon page to sponsor there. Also, feel free to give me a review on iTunes since the more reviews I get for the show, the better positioning the show receives in search results, which really helps people find more about us. Also, and finally, if you enjoyed this show, feel free to check out some of the other podcast content on offer at the Christus Victor Network by visiting www.christusvictornetwork.com. Well, let's dive right in now to wrap up part two of this series of our discussion on theonomy. Enjoy the show. Um, so these are some some good um, some good engagements with with Bonson, but overall, um, you you have uh, a major criticism of theonomy, kind of above and beyond what we've talked about. What what is that 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 heart of your your critique of theonomy so far? Right. So I, I really think that you know all these points that I've made are, are very important. Uh, critiquing the presumption of discontinuity, uh, answering the examples that. Bonson claims uh, show that the Mosaic Law was binding on non-Israelites, but all those things are, are secondary to what, to me, is really the heart of the issue, and that is, I believe that theonomy is an error of biblical theology. And by biblical theology, I mean, you know, the the whole idea that Gerhard Voss uh, taught us, which is that the entire Scripture, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, is an organic unity. But within that organic unity. We don't just see a static continuity of things, but we see a progression as God's revelation leads to and is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. I mean, just think of the opening verses of the Epistle to the Hebrews, right? Just a glorious statement that in the past, God spoke uh, to the fathers through the prophets in various ways and at different times. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. He spoke to us definitively in Christ. 
And so biblical theology is a way of seeing the unity of Scripture and seeing how everything is promise and fulfillment. It goes back to Matthew 5.17. Every jot and tittle of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. He's the greater temple. He's the greater king. He's the greater priest. He's the greater sacrifice. And so really that to me is the heart of the issue. To me, Bonson's key mistake is that he doesn't understand that what God was doing when he set up this theocracy within Israel, this this uh, kingdom of Israel within the land, centered upon the temple with uh, anointed priests and kings as the theocratic officers of this kingdom. When God did that, he wasn't trying to set up Israel as a model for the other nations of the earth to follow. Rather, he was doing something very unique and special in redemptive history. He was creating, really, a foreshadow, a prototype of the kingdom of Christ. And so his his basic error can be, this is really the whole error, it's an error of biblical theology, but has several facets to it. Um, I see three ways of looking at this error. So first, the first issue is this, assuming that the theocracy of Israel is merely an amalgam of church and state. That's the first error that Bonson makes. He thinks that the priestly office in Israel is basically parallel to the church today. The kingly office in Israel is parallel to the civil magistrate or the state today. And that the Old Testament civil or judicial laws uh, that were enforced by the civil magistrate in Israel as as a nation are a model, a blueprint for all the other nations to follow. But that's not what Israel is. Israel is not simply a combination of church and state. Israel is a theocracy. And that means it's the reign of God. Theo, Theos is God, and Krasi from uh, Krateo, to, to exercise power and authority. It's the reign of God uh, in a visible form in a physical land that's been set apart as holy unto God and centered upon the temple. Uh, Meredith Klein, in his great book, his magnum opus, Kingdom Prologue, page 51, has this great statement. He says, Theocracy is not a combination of church and state institutions. It is a simple, unique institution, a structure sui generis. That's Latin for it's in a category by itself. There's nothing else in this category. It's all by itself. And then continuing with the quote, It is the kingdom realm whose great king is the Lord, where all activity is performed in the name of the God King, enthroned, confessed, and worshipped in the cultic epicenter. That would be the temple. Whence theocratic holiness radiates outward, permeating all, so that the whole realm, land and people, is a sanctuary of the Creator Lord. So you see what Klein is saying there. He's saying that the that the kingly office and the priestly office alike are connected with this idea of a holy realm that is set apart as a sanctuary to God. And God himself is enthroned as the theocratic king and lord over that realm. That's why it was a part of the king's responsibility to build the temple. Solomon was the one who built the temple. And then the subsequent kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, they reformed and rebuilt and and repaired the temple and made sure that the temple worship was being upheld and and cleansing it from all of the accretions of idolatry that had crept in over the years. 
So the kingly office is just as theocratic and just as holy and just as focused on cult, that is worship, as the priestly office. And so it's not correct then to say that Israel is just a church and a state combined together. No, Israel is a theocracy, and a theocracy is something special where both the priestly office and the kingly office are combined together in this cultic epicenter called the temple. So Klein then, he see, Meredith Klein, this great biblical theologian who passed away in 2007, following in the steps of Gerhard Voss, he understood that the Israelite kingdom is a theocracy. It's an intrusion, an eschatological intrusion of the coming kingdom of God that would be set up through Christ, through his death and resurrection and ascension, and ultimately through his second coming. So the, the, the fulfillment of everything that we see in Israel is in the future. And that future is intruding ahead of time into the midst of pre-Messianic history, creating a type and a shadow, a prototype of the eschatological kingdom of Christ. Klein sees the state, now if you want to talk about the state, civil government, he sees that as something totally different from a theocracy. It has no analogy with or relationship to the theocracy of Israel. It's a completely separate institution. It was established after the fall as part of common grace. And so you can't use the civil laws that govern the Israelite theocracy and then apply them to the common grace state, the common grace institution of the state. There's no parallel there. So that's the first aspect of his mistake, is thinking that the theocracy of Israel is simply a combination of church and state. The second aspect, though, is that he misunderstands the purpose of the Israelite kingdom in redemptive history. Again, quoting Klein, this is in his review of Theonomy and Christian Ethics. He wrote the review in 1978 and published it in the Westminster Theological Journal. He says, quote, The kingdom of Israel, not just the temple in its midst, but the nation as a geopolitical entity, was a redemptive product of God, a work of divine restoration, given as a prototype version of the kingdom of God in the perfect form it was to attain under the new covenant in the messianic antitype. So he's saying, you can't just say that only the priestly office and sacrificial system and the temple is a type pointing ahead to Christ. It's the whole system, including the kingly office, including the land, including the penal system within the, within the uh, kingly office. All of it as a entire entity, as a unity, is a redemptive product of God given as a prototype of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah. And importantly, too, to add that the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of Christ, unfolds in two stages. There's the already and the not yet. The first coming of Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God, but in the first coming, the kingdom of God comes in a hidden way. Remember all the parables that Jesus gave of you know, the tares and the wheat and the leaven and so on? The kingdom comes in the, in the present age in a hidden way. You don't see it as a geopolitical entity that's out there conquering the nations. But there's the second phase, which is the not yet. When Christ returns, then the kingdom will be set up in that physical, outward, visible way where all the nations are submitting to Christ and all those that reject Christ are destroyed. So that is what the kingdom of Israel is pointing to. The kingdom of Israel is a prototype of the second phase of the kingdom of Christ the fulfilled consummate stage. Right. 
and that's why you have all these things in the Mosaic theocracy that involve putting to death idolatry, rooting out the Canaanites, putting to death all these heinous sexual sins, because these are all pictures of and intrusions of the Day of Judgment when Christ returns. So if you want to look at the one place in the Bible where you see the fulfillment of the Mosaic theocracy, read the book of Revelation. Read when Jesus comes on the, on the, on the white horse in the clouds of heaven with the sword, and he comes to destroy his enemies, and the nations are gathered to fight against him, and he destroys them, and then he brings in the everlasting kingdom and sets it up on the earth. That's what the kingdom of Israel is pointing to. So the first error is assuming that the theocracy of Israel is a combination or an amalgam of church and state. The second aspect of the error is misunderstanding the purpose of the Israelite kingdom in redemptive history. And the third error is related to these two, and that is he, Bonson, miscategorizes uh, the Mosaic laws. So traditionally, uh, there's been a threefold division. It's not only in Reformed theology, but even going back to the Middle Ages, to Aquinas, the, more, the, the Mosaic law was divided into three parts, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. Bonson rejects that. He thinks that instead of a threefold division, there should be a twofold division just between moral and restorative. And that means that the judicial laws, what we would traditionally call the judicial laws, fit under the moral laws. But you see how this, this is part of his error because it fits in with this um, mistake of thinking that the theocracy of Israel is a combination of church and state because he's saying that the judicial laws are part of the moral law and therefore they are they continue to be binding today upon the civil government even though there's no analogy between the theocracy of Israel and a common grace civil government today what Klein is saying is that look in a sense even the even uh, the threefold division even though it's better than the twofold division of Bonson between moral and restorative, even the threefold division could be better understood as a division between moral and typological. There's the moral law, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and then everything else is typological. Now, within the typological, you can subdivide into ceremonial and judicial, or between priestly and kingly. But those two offices, the kingly and the priestly office, are both aspects of the theocracy of Israel. So even the judicial laws then, in Klein's thinking, are actually typological. They're just as typological as the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws relating to clean and unclean and sacrifice are typological, pointing ahead to Christ as our great high priest. The judicial laws related to executing adulterers and homosexual activity and idolatry and all of that they are typological as well, pointing ahead to the kingly office of Christ and their intrusions of the eschatological kingdom and the true fulfillment of them will happen at the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment. Right. How much do you think, so So, kind of going on the biblical theology, I'm, I'm wondering if you could relate and, and um, answer, how does the munis triplex, how does the, how does the threefold office of Christ um, partially answer this um, because like you said I mean Bonson sees the priestly office as kind of foreshadowing the, or, or, or equaling or, or paralleling or, or however you want to describe that the church um, the same with the kingly whereas 
where if we understand the threefold office of Christ, I mean, like you were saying, Christ is the is the better priest. Christ is the better king. Christ is the better prophet. Um, how does that help to understand um, some of this, this critique of theonomy? And well, let's start with that one. Yeah, I think that it does. Um, I think that you you basically said it. I mean, this is something. This is you know. E- I, I believe that if I were sitting with Greg Bonson right now, he would completely agree. Christ is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. Um, and he probably would also agree that those things that I mentioned, such as the kingly responsibility of taking care of the cult, building the temple, um, reforming the temple, maintaining the sacrificial system, all the stuff that David did in preparing the Levitical worship and so on, that uh, the book of Chronicles so focuses on. I think Bonson would agree. Yeah, that's all fulfilled in Christ. That's all a picture of Christ. That's a type, and Christ is the fulfillment. Mm. But he, where he would go wrong is he would want to say, yeah, but the specific system of punishments listed in the Mosaic judicial laws uh, really is pertaining to Israel only as a state, as a civil government, and therefore, that is still binding today on all the civil magistrates of the earth. And it, to me, it, it kind of reminds me of when you're talking to a dispensationalist. Because yeah. dispensationalists have a similar problem where, you know, just as their, their Christian heart, they would agree with you. Yes, Christ is the true temple. Christ is the true uh, Israel. He's the true, you know, all those things are true. He's the fulfillment. But then they want to say, but there's still going to be some kind of you know, fulfillment in the land. There has to be Israel restored to the land and so on. You know, but does that mean that the sacrificial system is going to be restored too in the rebuilt temple? Well, yeah, but only as a memorial, not, you know. But what happened to your Christian heart that said, yeah, Christ is the final sacrifice, you know? Right. So it's kind of a similar thing where the true Christian heart of the man will come out and say, I totally agree, agree with what you're saying. I embrace that. But then there's sort of this thing that pulls them back to some kind of a temporal, earthly fulfillment. Right. And uh, that's why ultimately dispensationalism and theonomy are kind of the same. I mean, in a way, they're, they're, they're opposites because one presumes continuity, the other presumes discontinuity. But in another way, they're the same because they both fail to see, no, Christ is the fulfillment. Right. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, so. and, and I think my, my, the second half of my question, which was somewhat related, and I'm, and I'm glad that you said it before I did, that there actually seems to be a little bit more, um, not overlap, they're not saying the same thing, but kind of same outcome mm-hmm. uh, between, between theonomy and dispensationalism, um, is that classically in, in Reformed biblical theology, um, the church is the continuation of Israel, mm-hmm. right? right? And so, you know, not not in the kind of pejorative replacement theology that we get accused of, um, but the church is the full bla- blossoming of, of, of Israel. And so, um, whereas dispensationalism would say, well, no, there's Israel on the one hand and there's the, the church is something different. I, I mean, I could be misreading theonomists, but it seems like they're saying, well, the analog for Israel is the state. It's the magistrate. Right. Exactly. Um, where, whereas I'm going to say, well, no, you know, when, when Paul um, starts, start, you know, uses the Mosaic law within the church, he doesn't use it and say, well, this is why I'm handing you over to the magistrate. Right. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it's well, you know, this is the call to repentance, and you know, the, you know, the, you know all, he gives all the sins as some of you yeah. were. Yeah. Um, but but you know, now we're in Christ. So um, yeah, I, I, when I read those, I, I, I'm glad you said it first because I was trying to not be uncharitable. But um, it just seems like they kind of end with the same error where the the, right. the church is not the full blossoming of of Israel. That's right. And just a little uh, point, though, too. I I would prefer to say that Christ is the true Israel. True. Rather than the church. Now, since Christ is the true Israel, all who are united to Christ are the true Israel as well. So there you get the church. But you got to go to Christ first. Don't just go directly to the church. Because if you do, if you say that the church is the fulfillment of Israel, that sounds like replacement theology. Right. It sounds like you're saying, oh, Israel is done, now God's moved over to the church. No. The, Israel all along, from the very beginning, was supposed to be God's obedient son. God gave the law to Israel to obey the law. Israel was to obey the law as God's son. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Israel failed. And as a result, Israel was kicked out of the land. But Christ comes. You read in all, four, all the gospels, all three of the synoptic gospels, he comes and he's tempted by the devil, and he obeys where Israel disobeys, quoting those key verses from Deuteronomy. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ is the true Israel. He's presented in the Gospels as the fulfillment of Israel. Now, he then gathers to himself 12 disciples, modeled after the 12 tribes, and he gathers to himself all who will believe in him, whether they're from the Jews or from the Gentiles. And so that community of those that belong to Christ becomes the church, but it's not just directly the church replacing Israel. It's that the Israel is fulfilled in Christ, and then the church flows out of union with Christ. Yeah. So, you know, I would say the same thing then, you know, that, that's dealing with the dispensational polemics and answering the charge of uh, replacement theology. But I would say the same thing with, with uh, theonomy as well, that all of these laws that we're talking about here are fulfilled in Christ. And so that's why Jesus says, not a jot or a tittle, because it is all fulfilled in him. Right. He's not abolishing it. He's fulfilling it. Right. You see? That's the point. <laughs> right. 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 So. Well, so th- those are, those are I think, um, some, some really robust criticisms. Um, but you, you, you provided another thought. Um, for for me, you, you teed up a question for yourself, and I think it's a, a, a really good one. Um, is you know kind of what are the brass tacks, right? So if if the Bible is supposed to be um, you know our our rule for all areas of life, and if and if and I think all of us are going to say that yes, if a Christian is in public office, if a Christian is a civil magistrate, they should use the Scripture <laughs> to to lead them and guide them in in, in wisdom. If if the if we then, as 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 we're accused by the theonomists, if we set aside the Mosaic Law, um, then what standard does civil magistrate have left to legislate to to govern? Right. <clears throat> yep. By what standard? <laughs> by what standard? If you reject the civil law of, of Moses, then you have no other standard. So, yeah. So it's very important to to say we agree with the theonomists that the Word of God is our ultimate authority. And that we should submit to whatever the Word of God says about the civil magistrate. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about the civil magistrate? Well, it has quite a bit to say. 
Um, <clears throat> obviously, there's Romans 13, but there's also Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God established the covenant of common grace, not just with <laughs> Noah, not just with the covenant community, but with all of the whole world, with, with everyone. That includes those that are outside of the covenant community. And there he established the basic principles for uh, the civil government. And it's a the key is is that civil government, as established by God after the flood, is a common grace institution, totally distinct from a theocracy. Um, and that means that the focus of civil government is not on bringing in the kingdom of God. It's not enforcing the true religion and making sure that all who worship idols are rooted out. It's not the focus of it is not to be the morality police and make sure everybody is keeping the the uh, the laws defining. Uh, marriage and sexuality and so on. That's not the, the focus of it. The focus of civil government as established in Genesis 9 is on horizontal justice. It's on maintaining rights that citizens have in their relationships with one another. That's why the one key point that, that God gives is Genesis 9-6 uh, concerning uh, the punishment of murder. Uh, let me just read it there. Genesis 9-6 um, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image, in his own image. Uh, of course, that statement, for God made man in his own image, could be taken in one of two ways. It could be giving the reason for, because man is made in the image of God, to kill a person unjustly and, un and unlawfully is to attack the image of God. The other way it could be taken, though, is it could be explaining why it is that man is given the authority to execute murderers because man is made in the image of God and has judicial authority like God. So uh, Klein actually takes that second view. But it could go either way and I don't particularly have a um, position on that. But the point is, is that that is the main command that's given to civil government. That's the not all the penology of the Mosaic Law, putting to death adulterers, putting to death homosexual activity, putting to death idolaters. No, just capital punishment for murder. But I do believe that this is an illustration of a broader principle. So it's not simply limited to murder, but any kind of uh, situation where uh, citizens are infringing upon the rights of others. So that would mean that the civil government has the uh, role of protecting and maintaining not only the life of its citizens, but also their liberty and their property and whatever other rights they may have, such as contract rights and so on. That's the main um, mandate that God gave to civil government. One thing that I think is helpful is to keep in mind that there is a distinction between sin and crime. Now, interestingly, Bonson himself makes that distinction. He acknowledges the validity of that distinction. Sin, if you think in terms of Venn diagrams, sin is the bigger circle, and sin is defined by the moral law. So any transgression of the moral law is sin. But crime is a subset. Crime is sins that are um, punishable by the civil magistrate, by the state. And so now the difference between, even though Bonson and I agree on this general concept, that there's a distinction between sin and crime, and crime is a smaller subset within sin, he would have a much bigger circle for crime than I would. Right. So I would say that civil government should only define things to be crimes that are in some way, that have a, a public impact upon 
horizontal justice that have some impact upon the life, liberty, and property of other people. Uh, so that that's how I would define it. And so we would disagree on how big the circle should be. But it's very important to maintain that distinction between sin and crime because here's – here's the reason why it's important. Because the moral law does not tell us what sins should be treated as crimes. The moral law says you commit even the slightest sin, even if you think a lustful thought, even if you desire – you know, to, to to take someone else's property, but you don't actually do it, you're worthy of death, right? That's what the moral law says. Right. You're, you're worthy of eschatological death. You're worthy of being destroyed in the day of judgment, okay? The moral law doesn't say which sins should be treated as crimes by the civil magistrate, nor does the moral law define what the punishments should be that the civil magistrate gives for those crimes. See, this goes back again to that whole thing about Bonson's twofold division between moral and restorative law, thereby placing the judicial law under the moral category. Right. So he thinks that the moral law does include definitions of what is a crime and what the punishment should be. But if you think about it logically, that's not true. If you think about it logically, the moral law doesn't define what the civil magistrate should do. The moral law defines God's moral standards, and God is the enforcer of it eschatologically, not the civil magistrate. So the only way we can know what the civil magistrate should do is by looking at what the Bible says. And the Bible says in Genesis 9, and then Paul reaffirms it in Romans 13, that the focus is on executing murderers and using that as a, an illustration of a broader category because murder is the most obvious case where injustice is being committed where one citizen is taking away the rights of another. So, in my view, then, civil government, based on Genesis 9, is not a holy institution like Israel's uh, theocracy. It's a common institution for both believers and unbelievers. And so, the civil magistrate is not in the business of enforcing or promoting the true religion. Uh, the civil magistrate is not even in the business of being the morality police, because you're starting to get into this whole issue of the holy again. Um, it's really just focused on these temporal issues of horizontal justice in this life uh, where citizens are relating to one another in the civil arena. If the civil magistrate begins to step beyond that and starts to get into enforcing the true religion and saying, you know, if you don't worship the true God, you should be put to death, or if you commit some kind of idolatry in the public sphere, or if you are engaging in some kind of uh, unholy activity, if the civil magistrate gets into that realm, then I believe Klein is right to say that that would be a premature eclipse of common grace. That's a phrase from uh, from Klein's review of Bonson's book, a premature eclipse of common grace. Because common grace, God set it up, right? He said, right. until the earth, as long as the earth endures, I'm not going to send another flood. I'm going to allow the good and the bad to coexist. I'm going to send my rain and my sunshine upon the just and the unjust as long as the earth endures. So common grace is the playing field that God has set up in this world as the backdrop for the accomplishment of his saving plan to bring the elect to salvation. But he's not going to uh, bring that common grace order to an end until the day of judgment. When Christ returns... And he 
executes final judgment upon all the wicked, that is when common grace will end. But if we have the civil magistrate enforcing the true religion and holiness now, prior to that day, then it's a premature eclipse of common grace. So one one last one last section um, for for those who watched the debate between um, J D Hall and and Joel McDermott. I, I'm not sure if you were able to see that that debate. Have you seen I'm it? aware of it, but I haven't actually sat down and and listened to the entire thing. I think I've listened to snippets of it. So for for a lot of people watching, and I and I mentioned this earlier, um, it it almost seemed like an exercise. Um, in whose whose confession was bigger and badder and stronger? Right, right. Um, it, it you know it, it was very little discussion of what uh, what actually was the biblical teaching. It was it was almost um, uh, an appeal, uh, just an uh, appeal to, to confessionalism. Right. Yeah. Um, so so this question is theonomy confessional for first. Just kind of backing up, why is it? Why is that question important? Is you know, are we? You know, not all, not all my listeners. Most of my listeners, I think, actually aren't reformed. Um, uh, aren't. I, I have a hunch that everyone is confessional to some degree, but aren't expressly uh, confessional. Um, why? Why does it matter if theonomy is confessional? Or not? Why is? Why is that important? Why is that question important? Well, it's only because this movement. Um, uh, it was born within uh, churches that follow the Reformed Confessions. Uh, specifically, was born within uh, conservative Presbyterian churches that subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. So, obviously, if you're having a debate over theology within those communions that follow the, that follow the Westminster Standards, um, one of the ways in which you can have the debate is to ask, is this in line with our confessional documents? That's not the only thing we should discuss. We should also discuss, is it in line with Scripture? But it is a legitimate question, Yep. and it needs to be discussed, and it has been discussed quite vociferously, and there's a lot been written on both sides of this. Um, my view is that to answer the question, is theonomy confessional, that is, is it in line with the teaching of the Westminster Confession, is a complicated question and a complicated answer. It's complicated by two things. One, it's complicated by the fact that the Westminster Confession was revised in 1788 in the American Presbyterian tradition. So American Presbyterians are not following the Westminster Confession as it was originally worded in the 17th century. The original confession was written in 1646, and the catechisms were after that. But the 1646 version uh, was revised in 1788, uh, soon after the American Revolution, you know, during the time when the, um, the uh, Articles of Confederation were being debated and the Constitution was being written and so on. And so as the new nation was being formed and we were establishing ourselves as a different type of country than the old European countries, which tended to be establishmentarian uh, countries where each country had their own establishment church, like the Church of England and so on, because we were setting ourselves apart from that tradition and emphasizing uh, liberty of conscience and, and freedom of religion, uh, 
the American Presbyterians revised the Westminster Confession on some key points on the relationship between church and state. So, to ask the question, is theonomy confessional? Well, which confession are you talking about? Are you talking about 1646 or 1788? So, that's one part of the reason why it's complicated. Another part of the reason why it's complicated is because theonomy itself is multifaceted. It's not simply the presumption of continuity. If we're simply asking about that, is Bonson's presumption of continuity argument confessional? I would say no. But, if we're talking about the broader idea of a theocracy where the civil magistrate is responsible not only to enforce the second table of the law pertaining to um, you know, relationships between humans, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on, but also the first table of the law, you shall have no other gods before me, things dealing with religion and the worship of God. Uh, if we're talking about that aspect of, the, of theonomy then there is an aspect in which you could say that theonomy is confessional, at least according to the old 1646 uh, version. So, that's why it's a complicated thing, and I can't just say, yes, it's confessional, or no, it's confessional. So, let me break it down a little bit. Let's, let's look at the first point first. Um, does the Westminster Confession support Bonson's presumption of continuity? I would argue no, because if you look at Westminster Confession 19.4, which was not revised in 1788, at least not explicitly. Uh, that statement there in uh, Westminster Confession 19.4 is uh, fairly explicit, in my opinion, in rejecting Bonson's continuity argument, because it says three things that go against that continuity argument. First of all, it says that the judicial laws are distinct from the moral law, not a subset of it. The second thing it says is that the judicial laws were given to Israel as a unique nation, as a body politic. They weren't given to the nations. They were given to Israel. And the third thing it says is that the judicial laws expired together with the state of that people and do not oblige any other nation now. So those three things seem to me to be directly against the enemy, at least against the presumption of continuity argument. Um, <clears throat> now... But then the, then the debate comes in, but then what about the general equity clause that's immediately added to that, right. where it says, further than the general equity thereof may require? Now, Bonson and all the theonomists that I've heard essentially interpret that clause as taking back the expired clause. <laughs> so right. now it's as if it didn't even say expired, and all it's saying is that all the judicial laws continue because that's the general equity of the moral of the Mosaic law. Um I don't think that that's a correct reading of of general equity. Um, there's an excellent article published by Craig Troxell and Peter Wallace in the Westminster Theological Journal in 2002 called Men in Combat over the Civil Law, General Equity in the Westminster Confession, 194. And I think they do a good job of showing that that, that term, general equity, was a technical term referring to um, this idea of the higher sense of justice and fairness that balances and transcends the letter of the law. You know, like when, it, when a judge has a case before him, and if he were to follow the letter of the law explicitly and literally, it could lead to an unjust situation where, you know, somebody is being punished for something that doesn't deserve that degree of punishment. 
And so general equity is this idea that within the common law tradition of the Western tradition and especially um, the British tradition, that there has to be this higher sense of justice and fairness that kind of balances the letter of the law. And this idea of general equity is based on natural revelation. In the Western tradition, it's based upon the light of nature. It's not based upon special revelation. Uh, If you read Cicero, for example, uh, he talks about this. He talks about natural law. He talks about the um, the law of nations, which is an English translation of the the use gentium, which means this idea that um, even outside of the Roman Empire, the Gentiles, the nations out there, they they had a sense of right and wrong and basic fairness. You know, even even though the Romans are the civilized ones and and the Germanic tribes out there are the barbarians, yet. Even they knew that, even the barbarians knew that, you know, when you're uh, in, a, in a battle with your enemy, you don't just kill all the people that surrendered, you know, right. that kind of thing. So there's this general sense of the light of nature, which even those who are outside of the realm of special revelation or outside of the realm of the literal written law, they even know kind of, uh, they even have a sense of what is just and fair. And so general equity, I think, falls in that general tradition of um, the Western understanding of of the law going all the way back to Cicero. Uh, Calvin said, this is an interesting quote from his Institutes. It's in Book 4, Chapter 20. It's the very last chapter of the Institutes. And he said, There are some who deny that any commonwealth is rightly framed which neglects the law of Moses and is ruled by the common law of nations. That's that concept again the 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 use skintium how perilous and seditious these views are let others see for me it is enough to demonstrate that they are stupid and false (laughs) so calvin is pretty clear isn't he that that the judicial laws of moses are not binding on the nations that but that they should be ruled by the common law of nations that is this idea of general equity or the light of nature etc he thinks that theonomy is perilous and seditious and stupid and false. I wouldn't go that far personally. I think Calvin was overstating it there. <laughs> but I do agree with him that uh, it's not correct to do that. But, okay, so that's the first issue. Does the Westminster Confession support Bonson's presumption of continuity? I would say it clearly does not. I mean, the whole emphasis of 19.4 is to say that the judicial laws expired. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say that they're continuing, right. okay? So that that's just a prima facie reading of it uh, goes against the anomie. But that brings us then to the other aspect. So if we're looking at a broader view of what the anomie is saying, that the civil magistrate has a responsibility to be what is called, quote-unquote, the custodian of both tables of the law, uh, then there is admittedly uh, some basis for it in the original confession. Uh, Luther, Bootser, Calvin, all the magisterial reformers, they were called magisterial because they believed that the magistrate, the civil magistrate, had a role to play in the Reformation. And that the magistrate ought to be a custodian, not only of the second table of the law, but the first table. And so uh, the original confession follows in that tradition of saying that the civil magistrate is the custodian, not only of the second, but also of the first table. And so I believe that there is some uh, credibility to saying that theonomy could have a foothold 
in the original confession. But when we look at the revision that was done in 1788 in the American Presbyterian Church, I believe that that is taken away. Hmm. So in the American Presbyterian revision, the, the revision was not only made to the chapters dealing with the relationship between church and state, Okay, those changes have to do with taking away the idea of the establishment of religion and saying that the civil magistrate could call synods and have some kind of role in the church. So the, that was part of what they did change. But they also changed some other things. They changed the very end of chapter 20, paragraph 4, which deals with civil, uh, sorry, with um, liberty of conscience. And they changed the larger catechism, question 108, which deals with... Um, enforcing the second commandment hmm. and in those two revisions they took away the authority of the civil magistrate to enforce the first table so it's kind of complicated if you want to look at the actual text and see side by side you can go to my website and I have everything written out there not only the text was changed but even the proof texts the proof texts that they gave were different the American Presbyterian Church used different proof texts which has a big uh, uh, has it's very significant hermeneutically in terms of how you interpret what they're saying. So what I would say then is this. I would say that there is some color for theonomy to say that they have a foothold within the tradition because of the original confession. Not support, it doesn't support Bonson's presumption of continuity. That's ruled out. But it does support the idea that the civil magistrate has some authority to enforce the first table of the law. However, the American Presbyterian Church changed that, and therefore I would argue that the explicit changes that were made to the confession um, regarding the, the first table, they ought to function as a hermeneutical guide to understand what does the general equity clause mean. Right. So the general equity clause was not revised. 19.4 stayed the same. But because of the changes that were made in these other sections, I think that it creates a hermeneutical guide for us that there's an implicit revision going on even in general equity. So that the general equity of the of the Mosaic law in the original confession probably did include some first table duties. Maybe not as much as theonomy would say, right. down to, you know, executing all these, you know, all the penology, but at least some kind of first table duties, supporting the church, having blasphemy laws, maybe even having Sunday laws. Those would all have been understood within the 17th century context as part of the general equity. But in the American revision in the 18th century, I believe that the first table duties are taken away from the general equity clause. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful and interesting. I, I, um, right now I'm working on something, uh, kind of a response to an article dealing with an accusation against, you know, Calvin and Servetus and all this kind of... Oh, yeah, uh, that whole thing, right. Yeah, that, yeah, all, <laughs> what all a evil guy Calvin was for right. mistake. Te- I mean, terrible. And Well, this person's trying to basically pin it on Calvin's um, soteriological views, which is even more bizarre than oh. the normal objection is. Um, but, I, but I, you know, part of this is just pointing out that they had different views of... Um, the relationship between church and state and the magistrate right. and their role in protecting the, you know, the purity and kind of those first table duties. Um, and, and a lot of this goes to some of just those, those developing views on what that relationship should be. Right. So very, very helpful. Uh, yes. Well, 
Well, we are now uh, at right around two hours, so um, probably uh, all, all talked out at this point. Uh, uh, Lee, thanks so much for coming on. If, if um, my listeners would like to find out um, more about you, I, I'll have some on the introduction, but is there a website you can send them to? Yes, my website is uh, theupperregister.com. That's upper-register.com, and I have quite a number of papers there. I have some papers on theonomy. I have two papers related to the 1788 American revision of the Confession. Um, one paper just lays out the changes side by side, including the proof texts. Um, that's a unique thing, by the way. There's nowhere else on the Internet you can go to find that. There are plenty of places on the Internet that have the revision side by side without the proof texts. I went and found the proof texts. Hmm. And by that I mean the proof texts of the American Presbyterian Church in 1788. Those have not been published. You can find them on the Evans reprint, but those are hard to find. So I found those, and I show those side by side with the original proof texts, and those that's very significant hermeneutically for understanding what they were doing. Um, but then I have another paper there, too, where I just deal with Bonson's argument uh, in his book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. He has a, um, a chapter titled The Civil Magistrate uh, According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, it's actually an appendix, and he deals with the um, 1788 revision, but I believe that he completely misinterprets what that revision was all about. Yeah. And so I give a different understanding of it, and I give evidence to show that it was much more sweeping than Bonson makes it out to be. He thinks that this, the, the change was very minor, very superficial, only had to do with sort of a different view of church and state relations. I'm saying, no, it's a radical change, saying that the civil magistrate is no longer supposed to enforce the first table of the law. And that has a much more significant um, polemic to it than, than just uh, saying, well, civil magistrates shouldn't be you know, calling synods and so on. Right. So that, that second paper is also there on my website. Uh, but there are other papers too. There are some things on Klein, Meredith Klein's work. I try to give some uh, you know, easy introductions to what he's doing in his writings and um, there's a lot of other theological issues that I deal with there, but that's a good place to go uh, to get um, uh, some of my writings. And also, you can get in touch with me there. My email address is, is available there, and you can contact me through it. Perfect. And also, just a, a moment for uh, – I will give you the podium for shameless self-promotion. You have recently published a book that um, – Everyone who does any type of uh, exegetical work on the New Testament should absolutely purchase. Um, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit, uh, the title of the book, a little bit about it, uh, and where it can be found? Sure. Yeah, so I'm really happy about this. Um, I uh, published a book called A Syntax Guide for Readers of the Greek New Testament. Uh, the publisher is Kriegel Academic, and it just came out um, just a few weeks ago, end of July. Basically what it is, is it's, a, um, it's a, a tool to use if you are trying to read through the Greek New Testament and you come across uh, some grammatical problem or difficulty that you can't figure out. I just give a very brief, helpful answer to that issue, and then I give some references to some of the major um, grammars and lexica and so on. Um, it's similar to, you know how they have these reader's lexica? Yep. Like, for example, a reader's lexicon would be a lexicon that just gives you glosses of the vocabulary 
as it occurs through the text, starting in Matthew 1 and going all the way through. So you can just open up the reader's lexicon and then open up your Greek New Testament and you don't have to fiddle around in your dictionary to find the word. Well, this is similar to that, but it doesn't do glosses and it doesn't do parsing. What it, well, it does a little bit of parsing every now and then, but it focuses on syntax and grammar and helping you with translating tricky phrases and constructions. So it's a very useful tool. I think you'll find it to be helpful. It's one volume. It's almost the same size as the uh, standard uh, UBS Greek New Testament published by the German Bible Society. It has a similar cover, color. It has a, a, a bookmark, a silk bookmark. And so you can just carry it along with your Greek New Testament and use it as a guide to help you read through it. The goal of it is to keep you in the text so yeah. that you don't have to fiddle around and bother with all these other books that you have to open up on your desk. You can just have one. And, uh, you know, parsing and, and glosses are so easy now. If you have Logos Bible software or anything like that, you can just get it with a click of the of the mouse. So it's not necessary anymore to put those in. But there are these grammatical issues that come up, and uh, my book will facilitate that and help you to read larger portions of the Greek New Testament. That's my goal, is to get pastors, seminary students, even uh, some lay people who are interested in the Greek, to get into the text and to read as much of it as possible. I mean, preferably you should read the entire Greek New Testament. It's a challenge to do that, but the goal is to read and read and read and to just move on. If there's a problem, get it solved and then get right back into the text and keep reading it because that's how not only will you learn Greek better that way, learning it in context as you exercise your um, your reading skills, but you will get more spiritual benefit from it that way if right. you're exposing yourself to larger portions of the Greek text at a time. Perfect. And I also I saw um, some type of, um, maybe petition isn't the, the right word, but uh, uh, people signing on to, to voice that they would like to see it included in the Logos software? Is that- yeah, so Logos Bible software has a lot of digital resources that are, um, <clears throat> you can purchase them to have them open up on your, uh, if you open up your Greek New Testament and then you open up the other resources, they will sync with it. So my syntax guide is not yet available as a digital resource on Logos, but you can go to their website and cast your vote to say, I would like it to become one. And if, the, if it gets enough votes, then maybe they'll do that. Awesome. Well, well, uh, you'll have to give me that link. I'll put it in the show notes. And for those people who uh, who get the book and find it helpful or would like to, to or, you know, can't maybe uh, get the book but would like would like it on their Logos logo software um, to, to put in their put in their vote. And if anyone would like to see a sample of what the syntax guide looks like, email me and I can send you the first 26 pages of the PDF. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Lee, thank you so much for for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's Um, been great. And uh, I would definitely love to have you back on to discuss uh, New Covenant theology at a a future time. Oh, that would be wonderful. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for joining me and, and God bless. All right. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to submit them to freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or stop on by the Freed Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining me. Good night, and God bless. <laughs>